I used to very religiously, almost every day, read uh, Ann Lander's advice column in the newspaper. Many of you used to read that as well. And one day I clipped out this particular column. Let me read it for you. Dear Ann Landers, I recently met a nice guy, or so I thought. He is 42 years old, has never married, and works as a pharmacist. We've been dating for two months. In that time, he has made several derogatory remarks about various ethnic groups. He has insulted my biracial nephews and my Latina sister-in-law and has made some nasty comments about others as well. I have no intention of continuing this relationship, but I'm not sure whether or not I should bother to explain why. Should I be up front and tell him I am offended by his bigotry? Or should I just stop accepting his phone calls and let him think I've lost interest? I do not understand how someone who is so well-educated could be so ignorant. Signed, Simi Valley, California. Here's what Ann Landers wrote back, Dear Simi Valley, Education is no guarantee against bigotry. Some highly educated people are racist. Almost always, it's what they have learned at home. I wonder this morning, are we teaching prejudice of any kind in our homes? Do you know one of the most bigoted men I ever knew was a Bible college graduate? Uh, One summer I needed to have a summer roommate, and this fellow and I had had an acquaintance from years before. And I was shocked as we began to room together over how he spoke about black people. Finally, one day, I confronted him there in our apartment. I wondered, as I listened to him, where in the world did he learn that kind of bigotry? It was so deep that three years of Bible college did not dislodge it from him. By the way, after I confronted him, He never spoke that way again in my presence. Sometimes all it takes is somebody objecting to be able to make a difference. Now, there are many, many kinds of prejudice that we can be guilty of, right? Racism is prejudice because of color. Classism is prejudice because of social or economic status. Sexism is prejudice because of gender. Ageism is prejudice because of age. I'm old enough to remember when they said, don't trust anyone over 30. The person who now said that is well over 30. Maybe they are rethinking. By the way, I saw a great bumper sticker in downtown Marquette one day. It said, ageism will catch up with you. And isn't that true? Let me ask you, are we guilty of any of these? Do you know the Apostle James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was very, very concerned about this? You see, we cannot 
serve people as God intends if we hold prejudiced attitudes of any kind. Of all people on the face of the earth, Christians should be the most humble. The most humble. And we cannot serve people if we are prejudiced in any way. Now, how do we overcome that? Can you believe that James starts chapter 2 with this very issue? James is the apostle of practical Christianity. And he knows if we're going to serve this world as Christ would have us to, we must deal with this issue in our lives and in our churches. And so this morning, we look together at James chapter 2, and we look at this subject entitled, Overcoming the Prejudice Problem. Now, we are going to see two things today. First of all, we're going to see a principle. Prejudice is wrong. Uh, Our elder, uh, Dave Michaels, this morning, as he read that opening verse, you know, it struck him, it struck us how, how strong James is. But then as he rounds out this section, we see a warning. And that warning is that prejudice will be judged. And so let's take our Bibles this morning, and let's learn from the Apostle James as we begin where he begins with this principle in God's Word that prejudice is wrong. Would you open your Bibles to James chapter 2, and let's read again that opening verse that James begins with. James 2, and notice with me what he says as he begins in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The word partiality is a very interesting word here. It refers to an attitude of personal favoritism. Uh, The old King James Bible translates it, respect of persons. It is a very interesting combination of words in the Greek language. It literally means to lay hold of the face or the appearance. It is to receive by face. And so what it means is to let someone's outside determine your estimate of that person. It is to judge them by the color of their skin, the length of their hair, the clothes that they wear, the money that is in their bank account, or the degrees that they might have behind their name. And James begins very strong. He says, don't do this. Don't treat people differently because of externals. It is wrong. Now, to push this deeply into our hearts and minds, James gives us the reasons for this. And brothers and sisters, they are are very powerful. Look at what he says. First of all, he tells us that the character of Christ is the reason we ought not to be prejudiced towards anyone. In this opening verse, the emphasis is upon our relationship to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And two things are said about him in the opening verse. Number one, did you notice that he's called the Lord of glory? Glory here is in a defining relationship which defines the nature of Jesus. The glory of God is the divine and heavenly radiance that manifests the very visible presence of God. So that when Jesus is called the Lord of glory, what it means is Jesus is the very visible presence of God. So how he treats people is the standard for us. Notice secondly, twice in verse 1 he is called Lord. We are given his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he is called the Lord of glory. Now you know Lord means master. Lord is the term that we use to express our submission to Jesus as master of all persons and master of all creation. And so when we talk about Jesus as Lord, what we are saying is he is our master. And we submit to Him. So now put all of this together. Jesus is the standard of how God treats people, and we are to follow our Master. Now let me ask you, do you think Jesus would do what James describes in verses 2 to 4? Listen to what he describes and ask yourself, would Jesus do this? Look at this. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not become those who have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? How many of you here by a vote this morning? We'll keep our hands down, all right? Would Jesus treat people like the way James describes here? Would he do that? Of course he would not. You know, one of the popular slogans that we used to have in, in recent years is WWJD. What would Jesus do? Do you know uh, a better way to express that? Is WDJD? What did Jesus do? Because there's no doubt about it, is it? We don't have to wonder, what would he do? We can read the New Testament, and we can discover what he did do. And then because he is God, and he is our master, we are to do what he did. Now let's just look at how Jesus treated people. Look at what he did. He didn't show partiality. In fact, his enemies said to him, you're not partial to anyone. He saw the heart 
not the exterior. He saw the potential, not only the past. He was compassionate, never cold. In fact, do you know the word compassion in the Gospels is only used of Jesus? Never used of anyone else. He was compassionate, not cold, and he did not stereotype. Stereotype means to judge people based upon group labels. Oh, because you're a part of this group, this is what's true of you. Jesus did not do that. Now look at this with me this morning. This is what Jesus did do. And so James is simply saying to us, if you call Him Lord and Master, and you believe that the very radiance of the divine glory is what His visible presence in heaven now is, then this is how we are to treat people as well. It is the character of Christ. Look with me the second reason. The second reason why we are not to be prejudiced is the choice of God. The choice of God. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Do you see this? The second reason prejudice is wrong is it flies in the face of God's choice. Now in salvation, we have two sides. We have human responsibility. That all people everywhere are responsible to believe in Christ. But the Bible also teaches God's sovereignty in salvation, that God in His sovereignty selects and chooses those who will belong to Him. The Bible teaches both sides. Here, the divine sovereignty of God in whom He selects is emphasized, and you will notice God deliberately chooses the poor and the oppressed to be the recipients of His salvation. Uh, The poor here in this passage, it's talking about the materially poor. Uh, By the way, it is a, a matter of historical record that these very things that James describes were occurring right then. In Palestine in the first century, wealthy Jewish landowners had bought up much of the land. People had lost their jobs. Businesses were boycotted. Many uh, were destitute as a result. Moneylenders were plentiful and they were extortionate. And there was even a practice of what was known as summary arrest. And that is if a creditor was walking down the street and he met one of his debtors, 
He could grab that debtor by the collar, almost choking him, drag him into court, and there would be no sympathy. The debtor would be thrown into jail until he paid the last nickel. What James is talking about was going on. And yet, notice what he says. Those very poor people who were being abused and mistreated, those were the very ones, by and large, that God has chosen for salvation. The word chosen here in verse 5 means God has determined to save them by His grace, not by their merit. God desires to magnify His grace in salvation. One Bible teacher puts this so well. Since the rich usually think their status makes them more worthy than others, God deliberately chooses the poor to show that human merit plays no part in receiving salvation. Now, God in His grace, very graciously, also offers the gospel to the rich as well, and many are also saved. Now, I love the rich lady who said, I'm so glad the Bible says, not many rich instead of not any rich. But God, deliberately, And Jesus said this, God deliberately chooses the poor from a sovereign standpoint, but from a human standpoint, the poor are often more conscious of their need, aren't they? You know what money often does? Money often gives us a sense of power. And that negates the very helplessness we need to sense our need of Christ. The Bible says wealth blinds our eyes to the true riches. And Jesus said materialism distracts people from even thinking about their eternal future. Do you know church history reveals that what James is talking about here is absolutely true that more poor have come to Christ and have become members of the church of the Lord Jesus than rich people have. What he's describing is absolutely true. Go to Africa today and it's the poor who are responding to the gospel. Go to uh, India The masses that are coming to Christ are are largely amongst the poor. Go south to Mexico and Central America and South America, and you will find it is largely those who are disadvantaged who are coming to Christ. This is because of the nature of riches and the desire of God to magnify His grace and not human merit. Do you know a man who one time considered Christianity very, very seriously? 
This is before he became a famous household world. If I said to you today, do you know who led India to have its independence from uh, the British government, you all would know this man, Mahatma Gandhi. Do you know in his student days, he seriously considered being coming a Christian. He read the Gospels and he thought the teachings of Jesus could provide a solution to the horrible, terrible caste system that was dividing India and keeping them from being a unified country that could have their own government. Gandhi one day on a Sunday decided, I'm going to go to a Christian church and I'm going to talk to the pastor afterwards about my interest in becoming a Christian and how the teachings of Jesus might be able to help with this horrible caste system. Do you know what happened that Sunday morning? An usher refused to give to Gandhi a seat in the church and told him, to go worship with his own kind. And in his autobiography, Gandhi wrote these words, If Christians have caste differences too, I might as well remain a Hindu. And that was the end of his interest in Christianity. By the way, he also penned these words. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Would not you feel exactly the same way If you walked into a church and an usher refused to give you a seat and told you to go worship with your own kind, would you feel the same way? That usher who did that that day totally and completely denied the gospel of Jesus Christ that he claimed to believe. Because God, in His grace, does the very opposite in whom He chooses. Let's look at one more reason. This is so important to James that he says to us, the command of Scripture also shows us why we ought not to be prejudiced. Look what he says in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. Now notice what the Bible is saying here. We are to be governed by the royal law, 
And the royal law is the law of love. Now, if we ask ourselves, why is the law of love the royal law? Well, Pastor Warren Wiersbe gives us three reasons. Number one, it was given by the king. Jesus said the greatest of all the commandments is love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Number two, the Bible says that when you fulfill the law of love, you fulfill all the other commandments. And then right here, James describes it as the royal law because when we obey the law of love, it makes us a king or a queen. By the way, did you notice what James says here in the remainder of these verses? He says in verses 10 and 11 that treating others unlovingly, whether it's due to race, appearance, or status, is like adultery or murder. Does that grab your attention this morning? Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. Look at that. James is placing prejudice on the same level as murder or adultery. A man who got this, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he was a great writer. His name was H.G. Wells. He got this point. How he got it, I don't know. But look at what H.G. Wells said. There is no more evil thing in this world than race prejudice. None at all. It justifies and holds together more baseness, cruelty, and abomination than any other sort of error in the world. Now that is strongly, strongly worded. But as I look at what James says, he puts partiality, favoritism, prejudice in the same category as murder and adultery. And therefore, H.G. Wells, however he got this, was not far off. Do you know, showing favoritism or partiality can lead to disobeying all of God's laws. Did you know that? Do you know why many slave owners committed adultery with their female slaves? Because they believed that their female slaves were beneath them, they were just a piece of property, and therefore they could do whatever they wanted with them. So prejudice can lead to adultery. One day, uh, there was a beautiful Costa Rican woman in my previous church. Uh, She had married an American man. This American man was uh, abusing her. 
Uh, he would abuse her verbally. Sometimes she had bruises on her face because he uh, slapped her around. One day she sat in my office crying her eyes out as she shared with me the horrible story of this man who was abusing her, her husband. We had an elder in our church who was a Mexican. He knew her situation very, very well. And one day he said this to me. He said, Pastor Brian, it is not uncommon for American men who marry Latino women to mistreat them because they believe the women are beneath them. Therefore, it is okay to mistreat them. And this was playing itself out right in our church with this beautiful Costa Rican woman who was married to an unsaved man. While we're talking about this, let's just take it a step further. Do you know much wife abuse is because of prejudice? If you were to dig down deep into the roots of why some men abuse their wives, what you would discover is that for many of those men, they believe women are beneath them. And therefore, the reason they abuse their wives or mistreat them is because they believe they're inferior. Let's take this another step further. Do you know women in business or sometimes as customers out in uh, the service world will be treated in ways that men will never be treated because of gender prejudice? Sometimes my wife will tell me about a, 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 a very um, a disrespectful phone call she has received in a, in a business situation. Or sometimes she will talk to me about an attitude she has experienced as maybe she's been in a store shopping. And I will say to her, do you know what? They would have never treated me like that. The reason you are being treated that way is because you are a woman. Can I take it one step further? One step further? Sometimes in a church... Women in leadership will be dismissed and disrespected in the way male leaders will not be. And if you dig down into the roots of that, sometimes it's because those women are weaker and therefore they're easily taken advantage of. But other times, there can be a deep-seated sense that women are inferior. Let me say to us as a congregation, any woman in this church who's ever disrespected or dismissed because she's a woman, let us never let that go. Let us deal with that graciously but firmly because the roots of it are often prejudice. Do you know there are other ways not obeying the law of love can break other commands? There was a time in this country in which if you wanted to buy a home in a white neighborhood, if you were white, this was the price. If you were black, 
This was the price. And people would lie about the price of their homes to keep blacks out of white neighborhoods. Can you believe this actually happened in a church that I was a pastor of? One day a lady came to me. She said, you see that visitor over there? He's got money. Be sure to shake his hand. Can you imagine two men walking into the church, somebody saying, that man's got money, make sure you shake his hand. And can you imagine me going over there and doing that? Greedily hoping he will stay because his money might be able to help us. Prejudice can lead to greed and covetousness. You know, one day on the streets of Chicago, I was punched in the face by a man who did not like my skin color. I was trying to help his friend. And he sucker punched me. You can kill a person with one punch. Prejudice can lead to murder. Do you see what our Lord is saying? Why is this so out of place for any Christian? Well, it's because of the character of Christ. It's because of the choice of God. Far more poor and minority people are in the church worldwide than the rich and successful. And it's because of the royal law the law of love. Now, you know what sometimes we think? Sometimes we think we can get away with sin, don't we? We think, well, I can behave this way and, and I won't have to pay a price. But James says no. James rounds out this passage by giving us a very strong warning. He says, prejudice will be judged. And I want you to notice as we round out what he says, how serious this is. He says, our own scriptures will judge us. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Here's the point. Since the Bible condemns partiality, as sin, we will be judged by the Bible. Now, you know what this means? If we are unsaved, prejudice can put us in hell. Can you imagine how many Nazi Germany, how many German Nazis are in hell today because of their prejudice toward the Jews? Think of how many southern slave owners are in hell this very moment. Because of their prejudice towards African Americans. If they are believers, they will lose their rewards for not serving the poor and the oppressed. So if they're unsaved, you can end up in hell, but if you're a believer, you can lose rewards. I'll never forget sitting in a, a, a conference with a son, for a, a, an organization called Sun Life in Chicago, and a pastor talked about how he had a, a church in South Chicago. 
And he said the church got to a point where it started to uh, integrate, bringing in more minorities who lived in the area. And you know what he said? He said, as that began to happen, some of the people in the church left the congregation. You know what he said the bottom line was? This is hard to hear a pastor say. He said the bottom line was they didn't want to sit in the same pews with minorities. They weren't their kind of people. Now those people that did that, they won't lose their salvation. But you better believe at the judgment seat of Christ they'll lose rewards. And then James says, finally, the second reason why we will be judged is our own standard will judge us. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you know the Bible teaches us that the way we treat others is the way God will treat us? It's hard for us to grasp that. Sometimes we think, well, my relationship with God is sort of personal, and it's just between me and Him, and how I relate to others doesn't affect that. But here's what the Bible is teaching. The standard we use with others will be the standard God uses with us. How does God want us to treat others? Well, what does the last verse say? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, how does that work? God's law condemns us. The wages of sin is death. But God in mercy has sent Jesus to forgive us. The gift of God is eternal life. So for every Christian, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the mercy of God will triumph over the judgment of God. Now what James is saying That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to look on people in compassion and in love. By the way, if we don't, if we don't, it's a good indication we've never received mercy ourselves. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. But look at that. This was really serious to James. Really serious to him. And he wants it to be serious to us as well. Last Sunday, we concluded with a test that James gives to us, and today I want to conclude with this test. I want all of us to take the bias test. Are you biased? Am I? How can we know? Well, here's uh, the test. Number one. Our speech will tell us. Do we use racial slurs? Do we tell racial jokes? 
Do we laugh when others do? Do we criticize the poor, the backward, and the handicapped? Our speech will tell us. Number two, our friendships will tell us. Do we have friends of other color, social status, friends of other ages? See, who is welcomed into our social circle says a great deal about whether we are biased or not. I wear a watch on my hand that's an old-fashioned watch. You know the reason I wear it? An older couple in our church many years ago took me into their lives and treated me like a son. They loved me, encouraged me, and supported me. And I'm where I'm at today because of people like that. And I wear this watch to remind me of this dear older man, Bob Stong, on whose shoulders I'm standing today. See, do we have a wide variety of friendships? That tells us a lot about whether we're biased. Thirdly, our opinions will tell us. Do we resent the poor, assuming that they're lazy or dirty? Are we jealous of the rich? Do you know, and I'm ashamed to say this to you this morning, I remember one day going into a restaurant And here were two people who were dressed rather sloppy, and I didn't want to sit next to them. And I'm ashamed today to say that my own comfort was more important than showing two people that I assumed things about because they were sloppily dressed. That was more important to me than showing to them the love of Christ. What do our opinions say about us? And then finally, our service will tell us. Do we serve the less advantaged? Do we give time to people that are needier than we are? That says a whole lot, doesn't it? This morning, as we think about our own lives, and we think about how concerned James is for us, let's really ask the Holy Spirit to make whatever changes need to be made in our life. And let's ask Him to see the world as Christ sees it, to recognize God's plan, how He turns things upside down, and then to recognize that love will always lead us to see people as equal to us and deserving of our compassion and mercy. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for the past.
compassion of the Apostle James. And Lord, we know, we know that we live in a society that is divided in all these ways. We know that racism, we know that classism, we know that sexism, we know that ageism is alive and well. But Lord, when we come into the church, something ought to be different. When we leave this place and go into the workplace and our neighborhoods and our homes, it ought to be completely different. And we should be leading the way in how God sees and welcomes people. Father, change our hearts and change our attitudes. And help us to be those who operate according to the royal law of love. We'll thank you and we will praise you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.